and for the reading of our scriptures this morning, if you would turn to Galatians, I'm learning slowly, I'm a slow learner, that uh, sometimes the hardest thing to do is pick what to preach on when you're not preaching regularly. So if this hits the spot for you, great. If this doesn't, tuck it away, maybe someday it will, but it's all God's word. And so we turn this morning to Galatians 1, 1 through 10, though our sermon will focus on uh, verses 6 through 9. Follow along with me. I'll be reading from the NAS. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Pray with me, please. Father, we are slow to understand, slow to receive instruction, uh, slow to submit our wills to your word. I pray that you would make it effective among us today. Grant us understanding. Grant us uh, the minds capable of grasping your message for us today. But also, Lord, touch our hearts. Make us to surrender to your word. Make us to acknowledge it for the authority that it is in our lives because you have spoken. And Lord, for myself, I pray that you would make me faithful to the word this morning, that the message preached would be the message of your word and not mine. Bless your people, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I keep glancing back at the bulletin because I'm afraid I've skipped something. Something feels out of order today, so bear with me, (laughs) bear with me. Uh, And we're starting somewhere that may not exactly at first seem connected, but bear with me there also, because I want to talk about manhood briefly, just briefly. I like manhood. We're not supposed to these days, I'm told, Um, but I do. I, you know, Genesis 1, it says that God made man in his own image, male and female. He created them, both in the image of God, both needful, both important, both necessary. And yet in our times, it seems that men are told maybe we should not be so manly, maybe be ashamed of our manliness. Uh, and I, that doesn't just apply to men. There are all kinds of groups of people in our culture that are sort of being pushed aside or told to be quiet, be, you know, put down. But I'm just here to talk about manhood today. Don't want to get too carried away. So not popular or accepted. And in a sense, I don't blame them because of the caricature of what a man is that has been displayed in our culture. 
You know, you can't watch a TV show or a sitcom or something where the man is not either violent or a tyrant or a predator or an idiot who may be likable, but somewhere he stumbles and messes everything up and thank goodness that there's a good, wise woman in the scene to get us back on track. And so in all these subtle ways, we're kind of, we're told that manhood is not something to be strived for, not something to be grown to. And it, I will admit that, uh, you know, some, so there are some truth in caricatures. Men mess up. We do. You know, we need to grow up in some ways. But for the young people here today, let me tell you, you are to grow up to be men, not to be another version of a woman. God made both. We need both. Well, as a man, it cannot be denied that we think differently. We see the world differently. And there's no shame in that. It's just who we are. So because of this, there are things I don't understand, I don't fully get, I don't understand skinny jeans, have, have no desire to, I don't understand vegetables as a whole dinner, I don't get it, wasn't made that way. Not every man agrees with all of these things, but in general, I, I'm confused. I don't understand that today's metrosexual, it's not the way I was raised, I'm very blue collar background, very manly man, very hard Hard men in some ways. I don't understand the color pink. And I know I have worn the color pink, but there is nothing unmanly about making your wife happy if that's what she sets out for you to put on. Okay, but, but would I choose it? No, I don't fully get it. I do not desire. <laughs> we were watching a show the other night of man, manlyhood. Uh, if you, have you ever heard the show Coach? Coach? I, I love that show. He just, no apologies. He's a man. But he, he was talking, you know, they wanted to talk something through, and he said, I really don't desire to. I don't want to reach new heights of emotional health this evening. You know, and, and one word from this whole uh, therapeutic culture that I can't stand, and which he would agree with, is I'm not looking for closure. I cannot stand the emphasis on closure. Guys don't always want to talk things out. Guys don't want to sit down and necessarily watch a ballet. I'd rather watch a strongman competition. I don't care to watch the next George Clooney movie. Not that he's a bad actor, some of y'all's favorite, but I would prefer John Wayne. And it's, it's really a shame. An awful lot of young people don't know John Wayne. And I'm not lifting him up as a Christian man, but, but as a man, certainly. I would rather have John Wayne movie, like Big Jake. Or I know Andy Bland's old favorite is, The Quiet Man. Well, and because of this, I am drawn to certain parts of the scriptures more than I am to others. Uh, I do have some psalms that I consider important to me and that I find as uh, uh, refreshing, but yet I'm not drawn so much as to poetry as I am to, say, the book of Judges. There's a lot of gore in the book of Judges. I was told early on that if you ever wanted to teach a youth group, teach something from Judges, you'll at least hold the guy's attention. I like the stories of David's mighty men. I mean, who could not like a hero who goes down into a pit on a snowy day and kills a lion with his bare hands? Manly stuff. I like one of my favorite characters in the Old Testament is Samuel. Now, Samuel, he's a priest, a prophet of God. And so we have this idea in our head, ideal in our head of what that's supposed to be. And they're the soft and forgiving and the quiet spoken ones. Well, he gave Saul an order to go and wipe out the Amalekites, wipe them all out. Kill the king, kill the cattle. And Saul disobeyed this order, and Samuel shows up and has to rebuke him for it. 
And before, after he's done dealing with Saul, before he departs to go on to his next, next task, he says, now bring the king, Agag is his name, to me. And Agag, it says, comes gladly, thinking that death has passed him. After all, he's going before the priest now, not somebody with, who's going who's gonna to do him harm. And it says that Samuel hewed Agag to pieces. He finished the job that Saul left. Now, manliness. I like it. I'm drawn to it. Young men, don't be ashamed of it. Grow up, mature, but don't be ashamed of it. We need men. Part of the problem in our culture today is a lack of men. And I know that's not popular in the news. The men are supposed to be quiet, but we need men. We need leaders. So rather than go too far with that, in the New Testament, there are not as many examples of what I'm talking about as Samuel chopping up a king. But there are some. I mean, Peter is known to be a man's man, a fisherman, a sailor. He's, he can be somewhat impetuous, but he's also a man of conviction, a man who goes on a mission, a man who stands by his Savior. He fails here and there, but is restored to his place. And then I find that Paul is one of these men. Paul. We see this in the Galatians. Paul's the author of the Galatians. Paul was not personally impressive. So, see, manhood is not necessarily uh, giant, not necessarily a physical stature, but yet Paul was one who operated on a certain set of convictions. Paul personally, according to church tradition, was a little man, bow-legged man, probably a bald man with a single eyebrow, so not, not necessarily an attractive man, okay? But he was a sports fan. Paul speaks about watching the races or possibly the boxing matches at the Olympic when he's talking to some in the Scriptures. And yet Paul, who was, who was, who was said to be not impressive in person, but his letters could be weighty. Paul was a man full of conviction. And Paul was a man who saw, when he saw especially some of his people come into a dangerous situation, did not stop to put his foot down and say, enough is enough. Look out. Listen to me. And that's really the tone of this message to the letter of the Galatians. So Paul here, this is one of his more firm presentations. And this is where when we focus on verses 6 to 9 especially, you will see. Before we get there, though, let's talk about the Galatians. The Galatian background. Paul, this is probably Paul's earliest letter. Paul, on his first missionary journey, had gone up into what is central South Turkey today and gone through a series of small towns preaching the gospel, starting in the synagogues. Um, as he preached the gospel, as you can imagine, it aroused much opposition, and there were times when Paul was even stoned and left for dead outside the gates of the city. But he got up. The Lord sustained him. He was refreshed. He went to the next city, and he started the process all over again. See, there's a lesson in perseverance in the midst of opposition, plenty to learn just from Paul's life. And as he got to the end of a trail of cities, then he reversed his course, went back through those cities, strengthening and encouraging them and appointing elders in each one, which shows us the success of Paul's church plans. The gospel went out. The gospel was successful. People were converted, put their faith in Christ, and the church had its beginning. As he appointed elders, the church, the elders were there for their protection to continue the work as Paul moved on to his next calling. So the churches were planted, even in the midst of opposition and violence, yet they survived and they thrived and they would be termed a success, at least at their beginning. But we don't know exactly the time frame, but it was very early on because the book of Galatians was probably written in the, in the late 40s AD. And, the, and we believe Paul 
I'm sorry, the church were planted in the late 40s. Paul wrote the book of Galatians in a little bit later 40s, but probably prior to the Jerusalem Council. So we're talking just a short time. When he said that they were so quickly deserting in verse 6, he, he meant it was a short time, and he's shocked at this because he thought he left them in good shape, in good condition, solid foundation. But shortly after Paul left, apparently some false teachers arrived. These were either false teachers from among the Jewish synagogues in the town or more likely were those who had come in after Paul had left. They'd come in behind him and started stirring up trouble. These may have been Jewish Christians who, well-meaning, possibly, I'm not so sure, might have been well-meaning, but yet they came in and they were Christians. They trusted in Christ, but yet they were still zealous for the law, and so they were confusing kind of the old and the new. And they were saying things like, it's one thing to believe in Jesus, but now you must also obey the Mosaic law. And this came to a head, especially on the issue of circumcision, but don't get hung up on just circumcision. It probably was obedience to the entire Mosaic law to either make them better Christians or to make them actual Christians or to, res- or to somehow achieve a higher level of living and walking and believing as Christians. And this had come in and had stirred them up. So whether intentional or not, they have introduced here an error, which is not exactly a denial of the truth, at least not outright, but an error nonetheless. What they did was they added. It was an addition. It was saying it's one thing to trust in Christ, but there is, there is more. And Paul, you know, I, I sometimes wonder, how seriously would we take that? As I go through this, I, I, really, there is an indictment on the church today as to what we tolerate. He, he, he had taught them the truth. Someone shows up immediately and says, well, that's well and good, but you need this. Or let's add this to it. And instead of seeing that for the danger it was, they, they begin to think, hmm, maybe that's true. Maybe it's possible. Their conviction uh, was softening. Now, we don't think that uh, they had actually apostatized or turned their back on the faith. Now, we just think that they were thrown into confusion by this. And so what we have here in the record, especially early in Galatians, is Paul's response. He saw the danger for what it was. This is not a mere addition, but he actually saw it as a negation of the gospel. These false teachers had come in and had offered progress But he saw it as a digression. This is kind of like the offer of the enemy, clear back in the garden, is it not? I mean, when Satan showed up and said, has God said this? And Eve said, well, not exactly, but he said, we're not to touch this tree. And in the day that we do, we'll die. And he said, you won't die, but you'll actually be like God. He offered progress. And what he did was negated the faith. And it caused damage. So it's it's not new. We should be, we should be aware of these tactics of the enemy. We should be on guard against them, no matter what form they take. We should take this with a certain holy seriousness as we defend the truths of the gospel, the truths of the scriptures. Well, Paul sees it with the seriousness that it is. If you look in verse five, uh, we see that the very first section of what we're reading has ended in a doxology, and then in verse 6, I am amazed or astonished that you're so quickly deserting him. You know what's missing here is a thanksgiving. 
Paul in Philippians 1 verse 3 and Colossians 1 verse 3 and in several other of his writings, though not all, expresses just a certain thankfulness or gratitude for the people he's writing to. But here in Galatia, here to the Galatians, he's in such urgency. Things are so dire that he skips this and he jumps right into a rebuke. He wants to grab their attention. He says, I am amazed. I am astonished. He's in shock that you are so quickly deserting. This is not, uh, he's telling them that this is not a mere opinion. This is not a mere addition to the gospel. This is not things indifferent for which we grant people the grace to believe a little bit on their own. No, but this is actually a desertion. That's the word he uses, desertion. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. The word for desertion is like an abandonment, and it's in a word that you would use for a traitor. This is turning away from one thing towards another, not just simply mixing in a little something else and he's telling them you are in danger here so i'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you and noticed he calls it a desertion that's just amazing to me it's not even a desertion or a turning their back on an ideal but it's on turning their back on the one who has called them out of darkness and into light okay it is not just an issue of faithfulness to a creed but to god himself And he's saying, be careful. You're being led astray. In verse 5, in chapter 5, verse 4, he even goes so far as to say, look, if you continue in this, you will show yourselves as having been severed from Christ. So this is not some small deal. I think we need more discernment these days to know when something is a big deal and when it's not. I think we are too often, whether it's, I don't want to say cowardice, but softness, uh, maybe too willing to, to, to agree, maybe too much fear of man. I'm not sure. But we need to be able to see a danger for what it is so that we can call it what it is. And we need to have a kind of commitment and conviction, a manly conviction here, like Paul is displaying for us. So they're not finally lost, but they are in great danger. They are in process of being lost. We know that by the verbs here. It says that there are some who... you. Verse 6... You are so quickly deserting him. Verse 7, there are some who are disturbing you. And in these things, it shows us that it's an ongoing thing. They have not been finally lost. And as a note, true believers cannot be finally lost. You know, in John 10, the Lord encourages his people and tells us that no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Once he has called you to himself... He has set his love upon you, given his son for you. There is nothing that can snatch you out of the hand. And yet, he does use means to draw us back. We may step a little off into the wrong direction. And Paul here is God's means for restoration and and a strengthening of the Galatian believers. So he charges them with deserting the God who saved him for something that is actually an illusion. Something that is actually a phantom. Something that is actually... A lie, even though they don't at first see it as a lie. He goes on in verse 7, he says that they are being disturbed. This gospel, which is not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel. This word for disturbed is, is stirred up, agitated. And when somebody wants to lead you astray, one of the first things they may do is stir you up, agitate you. You are so much easier to steer when you are uneased. You know, and yet another common tactic 
of the enemy. If they can get you stirred up and agitated, if they can make you think that the foundations are somehow trembling beneath you, then you are so much easier to steer off in a direction when they offer you, they say, safety is over here. And Paul said, no, safety is right where we started. Okay, you're not in that danger there. They are being disturbed. They are being agitated. And he says that they want to distort. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. Another word I think the ESV uses is pervert the gospel of Christ. See, this is actually whether, whether they intend it to be or not. It's an attack on the gospel itself. The gospel is being distorted, being perverted. This word means being changed from something to something else. Even its opposite. It's like turning the sun to darkness or the light to nighttime. It's like turning laughter to grief, these things which we see as opposites. So Paul is telling them, watch out. And he's saying that this is enough. This is a hollow promise that they're bringing you. And ultimately he's saying this because there is no other gospel. Now, if you remember nothing else I say today, which is understandable. Sometimes I run on and on and on. It can get confusing. So to simplify To pare it down, I want you to remember that there is no other gospel. I want you to say it with me. There is no other gospel. Why is that important? For your protection, for your mission. You know, it's best to have a focused mission that makes us more effective. But it's also for your protection. You know, I'm told that the Secret Service, when they're teaching people to spot counterfeits, what they do is they put them in a room for months, and they teach them to know the real thing. And so they study and they feel and they look at details of real money. Do they have to know all the possible variations of money that could exist in the world if somebody wants to try to make fakes? No. They have to know the real thing. You, likewise, have to know the gospel itself. And you don't need to know every other philosophy or ism in the world. You have to know the gospel. And then if someone comes along with a fine-sounding addition or a minor modification... It's not the gospel. It's something else. It's another which is not another. Why? Because there is no other gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. That is the central message. In fact, Galatians itself, the whole book, really comes closest to a single-issue letter for Paul more than any other book that he writes. We get this no other gospel if we start reading. Well, let's just read in verse 6 again. I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is not another gospel. Only there are some who are disturbing you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. So right here he says this thing they're telling you is not the real thing. You're being led astray. This gospel, which is another of a different kind, is not actually the gospel. Okay, well, that's just the one issue. That's just this one variation that somebody's trying to get us to understand. Well, Paul doesn't leave it there because he universalizes it. He goes on in verse 8, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached, he is to be accursed. See how he universalizes it? It's not just this issue. It's if anybody comes along and says anything other than what you heard from me. If I myself come along and teach you something that doesn't line up with what I personally taught you earlier. If an angel shows up and gives you a vision and says something other than what you've already received, this thing is not the gospel, and that person or being is to be cursed. He repeats himself in verse 9, As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you've received, he is to be cursed. Cursed. 
anathema, set aside for judgment, eternal destruction. That's strong language. It actually gives us the picture of Joshua back in Jericho when he told the people, now we're going to go into this city. God has devoted the entire thing to the ban. That means you're not to touch it. We're there to destroy it. We're there to kill every man, woman, and child, all the cattle, sheep, and goats. We're there to burn down the city and the houses. We're to, we're to leave. You see any gold or money in the ruins? Leave it alone. It is devoted to God. It has been turned over to destruction. That's what Paul's saying about the people here who would be the false teachers. They have been now devoted to destruction. They are to be left, set aside in God's hands for the judgment to come. This is no wimpy preaching. This is manly, full of conviction, full of firmness, because he's out defending the truth. So there is no other gospel. It's interesting that he mentions, first of all, even if I say that there's something else, don't listen to me. Secondly, he mentions even if an angel from heaven shows up. There are two major religions in the world today, at least two, two dominant ones that are Americans aware of. Um, I don't put Hinduism in there, although certainly that is based upon visions from spirits and other things. But, you know, the Muslim gospel is not the gospel. Muhammad reports he received this from an angel 600 years after Christ. What does Paul say? If an angel shows up and preaches to you another way of salvation, another belief system that will make you right with God, don't believe him. He is to be accursed. The Muslim gospel is not the gospel because there is no other gospel. The Mormon gospel is not the gospel. This one's personal to me. I have lost family members to this deception. Generations of them. My mother's sister and on down. It is not the gospel. This is supposedly an angelic vision to Joseph Smith back in the 1800s. But it, Paul says this is not another because there is no other whether it be a person or an angel who comes and speaks to you, the Mormon gospel is no other gospel. This is not the Roman gospel. I always, I know America is largely, largely Roman Catholic. I want to be careful here because, because I worry about insulting people too. I do. But the Roman gospel is not the gospel. The Roman gospel is not the same thing. I believe there are Roman Catholic Christians, but the Roman gospel that is preached is not, it is not another, because there is no other. The Roman Catholic gospel requires a man's cooperation with the work of God. It requires a man's perseverance in the things of God. It requires a man's obedience and attendance to the sacraments, and he cannot know this true justification or satisfaction or right standing before God until the end. He must persevere. It is not the same gospel. It depends upon man's works. It is sanctification and justification all mixed up and out of order and confused. And so the Roman gospel, I'm sorry, is not another gospel because there is no other gospel. It is not the Arminian gospel. It is not even the faith that we bring, this ability to believe, it is not our ability to persevere day by day and to stay in the faith and to continue trusting in Jesus because the scriptures teach that even your faith, even the fact that you put your trust in Christ is a gift of God himself and so it is entirely a gracious gift and anything less than that crosses that line to where salvation being a work of God becomes salvation being ultimately contingent upon a work of man. 
And it is not another gospel because there is no other gospel. And today, this is timely, the social justice gospel is not another gospel. It's not another gospel. That's it. At, at best, it's putting the cart before the horse. But I have heard, I have read other Christian speakers say that if a man does not preach and teach about the social gospel, whether it be about racism or anything else, you know, treating inequities and unfairnesses, if a man doesn't preach that, he has no right to take the title of a minister of the gospel. But don't you see how that equates teaching on social justice with the gospel? It is not another gospel because there is no other gospel. Do Christians care about social justice? Certainly. Is the gospel a civilizing gospel? Yes, it is. Because it changes a man. God changes a man and makes him a better person. And when God changes many men, many people, and makes them better people, a society changes. Do we care about that? Absolutely we care about that. But it is not the gospel. It is not what saves us. And in fact, it's just another form of a utopianism which has promises that it cannot that it cannot deliver on it is not another gospel for there is no other gospel now i've used the word gospel here this morning at last count about 473 times have i not is it ringing in your ears yet what are you going to go home and remember there is no other gospel but let me ask you this what is the gospel I have found that in venues such as this and in other places where I have taught other Bible studies and small groups, that when we come back to this simple question, which is at the core of who we are, it's not that you don't believe it. You can't say it. Now, if the shoe doesn't fit, don't put it on. If that doesn't describe you, forgive me. But in my experience and in my own past, When somebody says, so what is the gospel? I think we struggle to communicate it. I don't think we, we, many of us have not practiced it or meditated on it enough that it can just fall from our mouth. And I have, I have good news for you. We're going to work on that just a little bit this morning. I'm not going to just leave you here with a rebuke. (laughs) We're going to, we're going to try to add some content to that. But let me first get back to Galatians because Paul here, in the book of Galatians, does not explicitly state the gospel. Here he is defending the gospel, and here he is ruling out everything that is not the gospel, and he's warning them of the dangers of it, but he himself doesn't explicitly state it. He is so convinced that he communicated it clearly enough, and they received it because he saw the evidence of it in them as the church was planted and began to grow, that he does not explicitly state it. He simply converses with them as if they have a common ground. He assumes their knowledge of it. And he argues for it from that perspective. However, as we go through the book of Galatians, we can certainly glean various elements of the gospel. So he doesn't give us an explicit statement, but he does give us much of the content of the gospel. He speaks in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Just back up a little bit. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Gave himself for our sins. This is the ministry of Christ or the part of the ministry of Christ, the, 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 the core of it, that he has given himself for our sins. And so the gospel includes forgiveness. Now, to understand forgiveness, you've got to understand your need. We're born in sin. We prove it every day in thought, word, and deed. 
all of us, even after being born again, we still struggle with the sin nature in us. We need to be reminded that we are saved from something, and it is the forgiveness of sins that we need. And part of the gospel is that the forgiveness of sins is available in Jesus because he has died for the sins of his people. That's part of the gospel. There is the receiving of the Holy Spirit in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. He says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? He goes down to verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. The promise of the Spirit, if you were here two weeks ago, we looked at that also in in Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. This whole idea of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit being the fulfillment of all the covenant promises of God throughout the Scriptures for His people. And so we have the forgiveness of sins. We have the receiving of the Spirit. Both elements as evidence of the blessedness of the people of God based upon the works of Christ. He also goes on then and talks about our justification. In 3, starting in verse 8, or just in verse 8 and 11, the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. And then down in verse 11, now that no one is justified by works of the law, we have this idea of justification. What is justification? Justification is the pardon of sin and the imputation. That means the counting to your account the righteousness of Christ, which he achieved by his perfect obedience to the law. So where we fail, where we sin, Christ perfectly fulfilled, and that is counted as yours, that is imputed to your account. It is not just pardon for sin. It is, a, it is a receiving of the righteousness of Christ on your account. This is part of the gospel. This is right standing before God. This is being put back into a right relationship with him. And then he spends a great deal of time throughout chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 5, talking about freedom, what we are free from, what we are free to. This is all part of the gospel. In 1 verse 4, we are free from this present evil age. All that the world and the systems of the world are under the curse of God because of sin that we are captive to and have to live in, we are freed from in Christ. We're no longer under its burden. We're no longer under its control. And we have the hope of a future glory that we are all working to. We are all on a pilgrimage towards. So we are free from the present evil age. We are free from the curse of the law in chapter 3 and chapter 5. The curse of the law that says you are a sinner and you deserve the wrath and curse of God. You are free from. Free from it. You no longer bear that guilt. We are free from the desires of the flesh, that part of us that wants to pull us back into sin. We don't have to go there because in Christ we have been set free from it. And we are free to walk in the Spirit, which means, excuse me, the bearing of fruit typical of the fellowship of the redeemed. All these things are different elements of the gospel. And so I understand sometimes why we don't feel we can communicate it because when you start digging down, when you start building up the blocks. It's a big deal. And so we can become overwhelmed, but it doesn't end there. All of this is for you by faith in the Lord Jesus. By faith. By faith and nothing else. It's not something we bring. Ephesians 2 tells us that God even grants us this faith, this ability to believe This ability to trust in what Christ has done. Not just that he has died for sinners, but that he has died for my sin. Faith is a gift of God. Not So it's not what we bring. It's not something we add to it. Like we get in by faith and we continue on our own effort. No, no, no. That's another gospel. 
which is not another, because there is no other. All by faith. Faith is a God-given ability to believe or to trust in Christ in his person and work for you, receiving and resting upon him alone for salvation. There's the gospel. Nothing added and nothing else needed. You see, it's sufficiency for your greatest need. But still, that's a mouthful, is it not? It's a mouthful. And when you get an opportunity on the street or with a coworker or whatever, and he says, well, what's this gospel you keep talking about? Well, do you have to know all that? Do you have to recite all that? Of course not. Of course not. Let me give you a gospel summary. We can have or receive right standing before God, or we can be restored to a right relationship with our Creator based on the life, death, resurrection, intercession of Christ on our behalf and received by faith alone. Now, that's still a mouthful, isn't it? I want you to be able to make it simpler. I, I personally, I can speak in front of you here today. Okay? I can't speak to people one-on-one. I don't set people at ease. And therefore, I'm not at ease. And, and I'm not good with small talk. And so until we get to these greater things, I'm often at a loss as to how to get there. So I can recite all this to you this morning, but I can't spit it out. And so what I have done over the years is I've tried to boil it down to just a simple tool of some kind. And it can be different for you than it is for me. You've heard me say before, I love the summary of the gospel as God saves sinners. Does it say everything? Not up front. Does it give me opportunity to explain it? It gives me enough to get started. You can get started in your own way. You can just simply say, Jesus died for my sins, if the opportunity comes up. And then hopefully someone's going to ask a question. But if they didn't ask a question, is what you said still true and faithful to the gospel? Absolutely. Okay, when somebody, when I tell somebody God saves sinners, it gets me the opportunity to tell them about God. It gets me the opportunity about sinners. Who are they? Me. And then it gives me the opportunity to talk about how there's a great gulf between God and sinners that we cannot reconcile. Not only that, we're so sinful, we don't even try. We're very religious because God has made us that way. We're very spiritual. We will worship something, but we will not seek after and worship him. There's a gulf between us. How do we span that gulf is the beauty of the gospel. God has done it in giving his son. It's God who saves sinners. So you see how it's just a doorway. It's just a beginning. You need to come up with one for yourself that can just fall right out of your mouth without thought. And then maybe... Maybe we get the opportunity to expand on it. So what is the gospel? Are you able to express it? Are you able to share it? In my experience, many believers can't, but yes, you can. Yes, you can. If it's important to you, give it the effort. Okay, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. And that doesn't mean you're responsible for how somebody receives it, but you are responsible for saying it, and you can do it. You know, the initial arrival of the Spirit, what was promised? What was promised? You will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Power is promised and connected with the testimony of the righteous to the world that needs to hear it. You can do it. It's not that you do it under your own strength or with just your natural personality. It's that you do it in the power of God himself who has saved you and who has blessed you and who has called you to the task of witnessing for his glory. 
So it is for your protection that you know the gospel. Because anything that comes along and pretends to be the gospel that doesn't line up with the gospel that you know is not the gospel. Why? Because there is no other gospel. So it is for your protection, but it's also for the glory of God. This is his means for convincing and converting sinners. This is his means for civilizing a society, for civilizing a people, for civilizing a planet. It's the ministry of the gospel because it changes men and women down in the root of their being. Let me close with just a quote from uh, Edmund Clowney, whom you may or may not know, former affiliated with Westminster Seminary, where Zach, I'm sure, will be familiar with. He says that the church is called to serve God in three primary ways. One, to serve him directly in worship, which is what we do each Sunday morning as we gather here corporately. You can worship on your own, but there is something special about the people of God gathered together for worship. We can serve God directly in worship. We gather together, we come before his throne because Christ has allowed us and qualified us to, and we offer up worship, the praises of the redeemed. And God is pleased with this. We can serve God directly in worship. We serve the saints directly in nurture. It's what the church exists to do, not only to declare the glories of God, but to instruct God's people that, that, that they might live in a manner worthy of the gospel, that they might know how to go forth and tell the glory of the gospel. So we serve him directly in worship. We serve the saints directly in nurture, and we serve the world. You want to be concerned about worldly issues? We serve the world directly in witness. First, first, it is of the highest priority. It is of central importance. There is no other gospel. The gospel is enough. To add or subtract to it is either arrogance or stupidity. Because it's enough just as it is. It is the power of God for salvation. There is no other gospel. The question is how much do we believe it? And we have a responsibility to go and to tell it. There is no other gospel. Oh, but it's good. And it's enough for you and for me and for even your neighbor. So go tell. Let's pray. Father, I confess I feel as if I stumbled all over this today. I pray that you would take me out of the way. Lord, speak to us from your word. Drive it home. Transform us. Convict us. Strengthen us. Strengthen us. Embolden us. Lord, we don't need more methods. We don't need more technology. We need more of the Spirit's power. Send us forth as witnesses to share the gospel, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.